Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locum Tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locum physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hey, everybody. You are back again for another episode of the Neil the Ortho podcast. Welcome to our board slash our OITE review series. And without further ado, not much talking for me today. Let's just go ahead and continue on and talk about some more hand and wrist injuries. So let's get into it. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. But uh, going forward to another bone in the wrist, the hamate, what's the common mechanism for hook of hamate fractures and the treatment? Yeah, you're going to most likely see these in people who have some sort of direct blow to the volar aspect of their a wrist and hand. So like a, a line drive baseball hitting the, the throwing hand of either a pitcher or like a third baseman or somebody who falls hard on cement right onto that volar aspect of their wrist and the hook of the hamate takes the, the brunt of that rather than the distal radius or the scaphoid. And you can diagnose it with kind of a 45 degree supinated oblique view or a carpal tunnel view. Carpal tunnel view is what I've seen more and that's what they'll show you on tests is they'll show you a carpal tunnel view or this 45 degree supinated view that puts the hook of the hamming into projection. And they'll kind of ask like, what is a treatment option for this? Or what is the mechanism of injury for this type of fracture? And then also a CT scan. If the x-rays are equivocal, you can always get a CT scan of the hand and wrist to look for hook of the hamate fractures. And then they can be missed initially. And basically you'll have this patient say, yeah, like, like a laborer. Every time I grip a hammer, I have pain right in this kind of volar ulnar aspect of my hand. And every time I hit a nail, I can feel pain in that area. It's most likely a hook of the hamate injury. And then various treatment options, obviously just like everything else, non-op versus op, non-operative if it's non-displaced and more of a stress-related fracture, immobilization in a cast for four to six weeks, and then progressive range of motion and physical therapy, followed by like ORAF treated for the symptomatic patients or the symptomatic laborers. And then even excision is an option. And for the symptomatic non-unions, those are the ones that you can excise. But what you want to avoid is the ulnar nerve and its multiple branches as it goes into the volar wrist kind of happens right around that hook of the hamate. So you really have to, before you grab that hook of the hamate with a rongeur and yank it out and excise it, you have to make sure that you have kind of freed up all of the soft tissues around it and that you're not grabbing the ulnar nerve and its branches right there. And then you can see a little bit of a loss of grip strength, but I think that most laborers and other people that have this will take that mild loss of grip strength over the persistent pain that they have. So that's really the hook of the hamming. They're really not going to test on other stuff like capitate fractures or I mean, maybe like perilunate dislocations and stuff, but 
those are so rare and the treatment for them is always just reduction and immobilization with K-wires that they like to focus a lot more on the more common things like the scaphoid and hook of the hamate fractures. So kind of moving on to some of the soft tissue structures and the wrist ligaments, what's the primary stabilizer of the scapholunate? Yes, this is going to be the scapholunate interosseous ligament. And this is composed of three portions. You have a membranous portion, a dorsal portion, and a palmar portion. The dorsal portion is going to be the strongest. So again, a scaphalunate joint composed of the scaphalunate interosseous ligament. And you have three portions. The dorsal is going to be the strongest. The palmar helps with rotational constraint. You also have the scaphotrapezial interosseous ligament, which is a distal scaphoid stabilizer. You know, if you just Think of it and just look at kind of the wrists. It goes between the scaphoid and the trapezium. And then you also have a bunch of other wrist ligaments. There are like a million and one ligaments in the wrist, but those are all secondary stabilizers. So the ones to know are going to be the scaphalunate interosseous ligament, of which the dorsal is going to be the strongest. These All these different definitions of instability and carpal instability. What is the difference between carpal instability, non-disassociative, and disassociative? So the non-dissociative carpal instability is going to be radiocarpal joint instability or instability between the proximal and distal rows. And an example of this is kind of a volar extrinsic ligament injury or a radial styloid fracture, whereas the dissociative is instability within the proximal or distal carpal row. So think of it as non-dissociative involves the individual rows itself as like the proximal row is one piece and the distal row is another piece versus dissociative is instability within the proximal row only like a scaphalunate injury or just the distal row only it doesn't involve multiple rows that are kind of injured together i don't think that that is super high yield but it is just a kind of something to keep in mind, I guess. What are some of the other categories of carpal instability? Yeah, so you can have carpal instability adaptive, which is instability secondary to like an extra-articulate uh, issue, for example, like a distal radius malunion. So like you have a distal radius malunion and then the abnormal like mechanics and alignment causes carpal instability. So with that, if you fix the distal radius malunion, it should fix the instability. And you also have just a carpal instability complex, which is just a combination of the uh, carpal instability non-disassociative and disassociative injuries that you just talked about, which were the injuries between the rows or, or like instability within the rows themselves. An example of this would be like a perilunate injury. Now, we talked about scaphalunate ligament, and we said that the, there's an interosseous ligament, and the dorsal one was the strongest. What portion of the lunotriquitral ligament is the strongest? That is going to be the palmar portion of that ligament. And I think that that's mainly more of a kind of a balancing adaptation that we've developed that if on the scaphalunate side, that it's more of the dorsal aspect that is more robust than the next bone over. So the lunotriquitral would have the palmar ligament being more robust, just so you have balance within that lunate articulation in relation to the radius and the other carpal bones. You don't want all of the super strong structures to just be in the back. You want to kind of balance it out. So it's going to be the palmar side. And what's the natural tendency of the proximal row carpal? bones. Yeah, so the scaphoid, so the scaphoid is going to palmar flex. The triquitrum is going to extend or dorsiflex. So like if these bones are just left on their own, 
the scaphoid wants to plumb our flex and the triquitrium wants to extend. And the lunate is just kind of along for the ride is, is a good way to say it. So for the lunate, it depends on what ligaments are injured. So if the scapholunate ligaments are injured, it's just going to be depending on its attachment to the triquitrium and the lunate is going to extend because the triquitrium wants to extend versus if the lunotriquitrial ligaments are injured, the lunate is going to go along with the scaphoid and it will flex because the scaphoid wants to palmar flex. So if you know that the scaphoid wants to palmar flex, the triquitrium wants to extend and the lunate is just along for the ride that can help you out. We'll go a little bit further into detail with kind of these wrist deformities. But so what are the wrist pathomechanics associated with like scapholunate ligament injury, for example? Yeah, so the scapholunate ligament injury, that's you're going to look at the lateral view of wrist x-ray and you're going to see that kind of unexposed or unexposed, unopposed extension <laughs> of the lunate with the triquetrum, just like what you said, because the triquetrum wants to extend naturally that if the scapholunate ligament is injured or ruptured or dissociated, that lunate is going to fall into more extension in relation to the scaphoid, which is now going to be more flexed. And that's when you get DC or dorsal intercalated segment instability, DISI, where during wrist flexion and you'll see kind of dorsal subluxation, abnormal scaphoid motion, and then scapholunate advanced collapse arthritis or slack wrist. So we had snack wrist, which was scaphoid non-union, but now the scaphoid hasn't been injured, but the scapholunate ligament has been injured, you get slack wrist. And you can get an SL injury with trauma, but also with inflammatory arthropathy, such as rheumatoid arthritis. So if you have scapholunate ligament injury and you're looking at a lateral wrist x-ray, that lunate will be pointed more dorsal and the scaphoid will be more flexed. And then you're going to, we actually may talk about this, but if we don't, you're going to measure the angle between the scaphoid axis and the perpendicular axis of the lunate, and that will give you an idea of a DC wrist versus a normal wrist. But you won't be required to make those measurements on a test. It's just something to keep in mind that if you see the lunate pointed far more dorsal than it should, then think SL uh, ligament injury. And what is a positive scaphoid shift test on exam? Yeah, so this is when you're examining for scapholunate ligament injury, for example. And so what this is, is you have a pain or a clunk when the wrist is moved from ulnar deviation to radial deviation with the examiner's thumb over the scaphoid tubercle. You can do this on your own hand. Like if you ulnarly deviate your hand and put your thumb right on your scaphoid tubercle, then you start to radially deviate it, you'll feel more of your tubercle the more you radially deviate it. And so in patients that have this injury, they're going to have pain or a clunk because again, those ligaments are injured uh, when the wrist is moved from ulnar to radial deviation. And uh, there are differing degrees of, of positivity with the differing instability grades, which I think is a little bit beyond the scope of this talk. And I hope <laughs> beyond the scope of the OITEs or the boards. And uh, what x-ray can be obtained in patients with a suspected scapholuted injury, but they may have a negative just PA wrist x-ray. Yeah. If you're examining a patient, they have wrist pain, their x-rays are fairly unremarkable. I mean, you don't see any obvious fractures. You don't see any obvious dislocations, but they still have pain right at that 
kind of dorsal wrist. And uh, what you're going to have them do is do a clenched fist PA view. And what that clenched fist does is it will cause, if there is an SL ligament injury, it'll cause that scaphoid and lunate to separate and you'll see a bigger gap between the scaphoid and the lunate. And then that is fairly equivocal or the patient's in too much pain to do a reliable clenched fist view. You can do an MRI and then during a wrist arthroscopy, that's part of the kind of diagnostic wrist arthroscopy is to look at the integrity of the scapholunate ligament. And so obviously you can have acute injuries and chronic injuries. What are some of the treatment options for these? Yeah. So some ways to treat an acute scapholunate injury, if you can get to them acutely, it'd be great. You just do an open repair and then you stabilize it. There are multiple different techniques on how to do this. You can do this with suture anchors and drill holes. Uh, you can do this with K-wire stabilization, casting, a lot of different techniques. But again, acutely, you want to open repair these and stabilize them somehow. Now, for these chronic injuries, if they are reducible and, and you have quality tissue, you can try for an open repair. You, you can also do a soft tissue reconstruction. They have different results, um, but that is one of the treatment options. And so like what these like different reconstructions are, maybe like a dorsal capsulodesis, when you do an FCR, tenodesis, ligament reconstructions, et cetera. These are all different types of soft tissue reconstructions that you can do to fix these chronic injuries. If this is irreducible, and again, this is a chronic scaphalunate injury, you're looking at things like a proximal carpectomy and or like a four corner fusion with scaphoid excision. Pretty much the, a lot of these surgeries are similar to like what we we're talking about earlier, the snack wrist. So again, choosing between that proximal oral carpectomy and a four corner fusion, you just want to look at that scaphoid and see if there's any generation of the scaphoid. If there is, you like you want to go with a fusion. If not, you can probably do a proximal oral carpectomy. And if they have arthritis, you can also do the partial denervations. So again, you're denervating like the AIN nerve and maybe some uh, some branches of the PIN, but mostly like the AIN denervation. You can do a fusion as well as a proximal carpectomy for arthritis. So again, acutely open repair these. Chronic, if they're reducible, you can try to open repair these or do some type of soft tissue reconstruction. If they're irreducible, you're looking at some type of carpectomy or fusion. And if there's arthritis, you're looking at fusion, carpectomy, as well as some denervation. Now, you talked a little bit earlier about a DC wrist or a dorsal segmental intercalated segment instability. So dorsal intercalated segment instability or DC wrist. What is the wrist deformity seen with a lunotriquitrial injury? Yeah, so a lunotriquitral ligament injury, obviously, just like we talked about and we'll reiterate a couple of times here, is because that triquitrum wants to fall into extension. So if now if you have that lunotriquitral ligament injury, the lunate is going to now follow the scaphoid, which wants to naturally flex. You're going to have volar intercalated segment instability. And basically, you're going to have a decreased SL angle, but an increased LT angle. So decreased scaphoid angle because the lunate is going to follow with the scaphoid, but a bigger lunotriquitral angle because the lunate is now dissociated from the triquitrum and falling into flexion. And obviously I'm a little bit, just like all of us are biased towards orthobullets or Google. <laughs> If, if you just Google V-I-S-I, or if you put it into orthobullets V-I-S-I, you'll understand what we're talking about with how that lunate points volarly with VC and how it points dorsally with DC. It's it, 
once you see it, you're like, oh, okay, this all makes sense. We hope that you all enjoyed that episode. We hope that you all are learning something. And uh, please, if you have checked out our book, please give us a five-star review uh, and let us know how much you enjoy it. And if you don't like it in anything other than five stars, just email us. Just just don't don't leave a review. Just, just <laughs> send us a message. Let us know what you'd like to improve on, and we'll try to work on that. And hopefully we can get it better for you next time. All right, everybody. We'll see you all next episode. Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, Locum Tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if Locum Tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.